what an honor, what a pleasure to have you here on this once again mom podcast. This has been a dream of mine and I'm just so honored that you would spend a little bit of your time with me as we navigate postpartum motherhood together. This podcast is all about motherhood. We'll be covering all the different aspects of motherhood, but the main focus will be those tender postpartum days, weeks, and first year of motherhood. We will be talking about the physical experience of birthing a baby and navigating healing as a mother, the practical aspects of healing, not only nutrition and supplements, but moving into the heart and the soul of matters, the emotional movement of the body and how it plays with our mental states. We will cover what tribal motherhood looks like and feels like, how to find that in your own community and the boundaries that we as women get to discover and establish. The most exciting topic for me personally is what it looks like to heal the masculine and feminine in us as we become and fully embody the matriarch. There are so many exciting conversations and energetic spaces that we're going to explore here. Having you here is one of my greatest honors and such a pleasure. I hope that you feel the immense love and gratitude that I have for you in this space. I could easily not introduce this woman, allow you to listen to this conversation, and you would walk away so connected to the gift of your own power as a mother, get a feel for what she does and who she is. But I desire for this podcast to be like a dinner party you attend and get to network and meet so many wonderful people who have the capacity to help you along your own journey of life and mothering. And there are no great dinner parties without the introductions and sharing of the ways that are relevant to you. So let me attempt to share with you who you're about to meet. Her Instagram bio states that she offers embodiment and nourishment for mothers, reclaiming rooted motherhood, postpartum and beyond. She is a postpartum keeper and an embodied motherhood guide. She walks with women to reclaim their birthright, a rooted mothering experience that is embodied and joyful. She brings a radical practicality to postpartum and mothering in a way that uniquely settles you as a mom, bringing the realization that I was made for this and I'm not broken. She invites you to look at the things that may feel really uncomfortable without judgment or disdain. She is a gentle mama who has ancient wisdom. Our conversation is rich with all of that and so much more. I am so eager to share with you this glorious woman, my friend, Nicole. She can be found on Instagram at the seat of joy underscore, all of which can be found in the show notes and in her bio. Now, without further ado, let's dive into this nourishing conversation. Oh my goodness. I'm so excited to be talking with you today. Genuinely, genuinely. Um, Today we have Nicole on the podcast and watching you. I I am like super emotional right now as well. So I'm just going to warn you there will be tears today. Wonderful. I have been watching Nicole, um, I think for about two years. Um, I think as I was trying to think back through when I was prepping for the show and um. I had just gotten pregnant with my daughter, my last baby, who's 20 months now. And I don't even know how I found you. I don't remember any of those things, but um, I was looking at postpartum. I wanted this postpartum, my fourth postpartum to be different than any other postpartum that I'd ever had. 
And um, it was shortly thereafter that you started putting together your nourished um, postpartum course or summit, not course, but summit. Mm -hmm. And I was so excited um, because everything that I had watched from you about uh, womanhood and motherhood and it felt so rich. It felt so nourishing, like nourishing is, was the word. And that was the word of the pregnancy and of my postpartum, not only the nourished part, but trust. And you carry such a, I'm going to cry. You carry such a gorgeous sovereignty in your motherhood that I have never witnessed before in any other woman. Um, You embrace your motherhood in a way that is rich and it's not a burden to be a mother to you. And that is revolutionary in our society and was revolutionary to me. I knew that it was possible. I, in my DNA, I knew that this was how it was designed because God, like we weren't given a uterus to be able to grow babies to then be disconnected and disassociated from the innate wisdom that we carry in our actual beings. And I seeing you, there was all these women talking about it, but they were, I felt they were so in their masculine and talking about it as this structured thing. And in watching you, you just carry this different presence. So I'm so excited to share you with our audience. And I would love to start with you sharing your story and kind of how you came to this place. If you came, if you've, I guess the first question would be, Have you always been this settled in your motherhood? (laughs) And Mm -hmm. if not, what was, what was your own personal journey to be this settled in yourself and in this motherhood aspect of your life? Yeah. Yeah. I would say I've not always been quite this settled, but I have always been this devoted, right? Like I was really, really devoted And with my first, that did have some some pretty strong tendrils of that mother-martyr archetype that comes through. Um, I was so devoted to him. I would like lay down and die for him. And And I did day after day after day after day. And it wasn't until I had my second that there was this reflection of how inherently unsustainable that was. Um, but that devotion was there and the willingness to surrender, right? I think there was this martyrdom gets a really bad rep and honestly for really good reason. But for me, it was a really appropriate part of my development as a mother because I was brought to my knees and surrender to such an extreme, right? Because I was willing to martyr myself, And because I was willing to go to my edges and because I was willing to be expanded, I was. My capacity to hold my child grew my capacity to hold Mm. myself. And I needed that so much. I needed it so, so badly in my life. And if it weren't, you know, for my love for him and the depth that that slammed into me, 
that was what allowed me to go to those places. And like, and, and I say martyr, like I was happily a martyr. I was the most joyful martyr you would ever see. I like, I not only was running myself into the ground, I didn't even care that I was being wow. run into the ground. Like I didn't have a problem with yeah. it either. I was. So was that, fine. was that an example that you had in your own mother? Was your, was your own mother that sacrificial lamb in her, in her <clears throat> motherhood? Was your grandmother that way? Like where, where was that piece together? Or was that just your own process of this is God, I love this kid so fucking much that I can't not do yeah. this. <laughs> yeah. I think my, I did not have that example from either of my mother, my mother, my grandmother, or anyone that I really knew intimately in my life. I think it was, the I swung oh. so far the opposite was like, I am going to love this child so good. He will never doubt it the ways that I have been raised to doubt it. There's never a moment. I won't for a moment let him even waver in his certainty. And and in truth, wavering and then returning to certainty is a really healthy part of human emotional regulation and intelligence. And it's something that I've since had to pivot and guide my son through for his own good as much as mine. Um, But I think those foundations of trust were definitely laid out. Um, I definitely wasn't mothered the way that I mothered, but there were seeds of it. You know, my mother's a home birth midwife. I went to La Leche League meetings as a little girl. She tandem nursed my brothers for four years. Like there was lots of little bits where I was exposed to really this underlying trust of like the body works. The body does what babies and mothers need. And so that devotion was rooted in trust that my body could do all of it, right? That I could birth safely, that postpartum was designed to feel really, really good. I had absolute faith that my body wanted me to enjoy, that God wanted me to enjoy, that there is no way in hell humans would have been having babies for thousands and thousands of years if it sucked and so if it sucks it can't be my baby and it can't be my body it's got to be something else so I'm willing to shed everything else in service wow. of my body like, and of my child can we just pause for a second on that because that <laughs> is such a first of all a unique perspective um that is so not something that i have encountered in any of the women that we've that i've i've talked to uh concerning their postpartum it was just like yeah it's meant to be shit show it's meant to be this hellhole and i love my kid but i just have to get through the first 5 years and if i can just get through the first 5 years then i will come up for air and everything will be okay or you have the opposite of like i love babyhood so much i'm so scared of anything else and um, this idea of, you know, the baby growing up and, and my own process, like, and then there is that neglect, that self neglect. And so that honoring that process and knowing intimately and innately that are like that, I feel like is the crux of women returning to this is that belief that our bodies are not broken. The messaging that we've received through society and through the medical system for at least the last century that we are broken and we are there is something innately wrong with us and we need, you know, definitely a man to come in and save us through the medical system. Um, that in and of itself. And I know like you touched on those things within, within your nourished postpartum, but summit, but like, I just, I, I just wanted to pause on that for a second. So can you share with us, mm-hmm. uh, 
moving through, you have four children now mm-hmm. and beautiful boys, beautiful, beautiful boys. <laughs> Did you, how, I mean, obviously you don't have a girl to know, like to, to feel through the difference of that, but what in your process through each of these postpartums, do you feel like it's been more of a, a of a personal growth of your maturity and being able to navigate? How was your first postpartum compared to your fourth, for instance? Yeah. My first was, it was just euphoric, honestly. And it was just so good. I felt like I was on drugs for weeks. I, I, yeah, he was telling his dad at that time. I was like, I literally did not know that human existence could feel this high. Mm. It is, I mean, it was like, this is amazing that we get to be alive and feel something this good. I was like, this is unreal. It doesn't make sense that you can feel so good, so safe, so stable, so in love, so joyful. Like I was just electric on this child for a solid like three weeks before it even started to like ever flow out. I was out of my mind. It's a portal. Did you feel like, were you aware, consciously aware of that portal there? Or was it until the crash? Like, did you crash? I didn't crash at some point. I didn't crash. It kind of just like, I think because I observed postpartum the way that I did, there was no force of crash, right? The structure of my life Mm. supported that portal being open as long as it needed to be open. And as the portal closed, the structure of my life kind of intuitively closing around it. So I did like leave the house with my first way earlier than my others, but still not until three and a half weeks. And I only left to go to our favorite grocery store because I wanted all of our best friends at the co-op to like snuggle up to our baby. And like, and I walked and it was four minutes from the house and, you know, it was still really gentle. It was still really easy. It felt amazing to be out. And then I went home and I didn't leave again for another week or, you know, whatever. So I think because I held myself, because I was home, because I was resting, because I was honestly doing more during that postpartum than I think I did in subsequent ones in a lot of ways. I definitely was up out of bed sooner. Um, I wasn't really like doing a ton of cooking or cleaning, but like I wouldn't hesitate to get like at two weeks postpartum to get out of bed and fix myself food. Whereas with my fourth postpartum, like I didn't let myself do that. Right. I stayed in bed and I had myself be served, which I think is an interesting thing to note that I needed to have more structure and more almost regulation around postpartum spaciousness with my fourth baby than my first, because with your first, there's just naturally more space around you, around your days, your interactions, your dynamics, your feelings. There's naturally more space. The responsibility is different. It's just different. There there is just less to be doing, less to hold. And so you don't need quite as much um, like rules about it you can just follow the lead of your body in in a more useful way sure so it felt good to me I would do it with my fourth baby I'm much more aware of there's four other little beings and the multi-layer dynamics between them that I'm also managing and holding right and so it's not that I'm at risk but there is a possibility of my resources being spent 
unexpectedly or even kind of sneakily, right? So I'm going to be very, very mindful of how I'm resourced and how I'm spending my energy. And I'm going to be very, very conservative because I know that I'm not just taking care of me and baby. It's me and baby and brother and brother and brother, which is just a much bigger task. Absolutely. Within the support system that you had, the first versus the second, I'm I'm going to draw some assumptions here. So correct me if I'm wrong. Um, mm-hmm. Baby, baby's dad was around more, right? Did you have mom? Did you have friends? Did you have a support network? How? I get, let me ask this question: How has the support network shifted and changed throughout mm-hmm. your iterations of the four? Yeah. With our first, it was the classic, like kind of everyone and their dog was happy to bring us a dinner, right? Yeah. It was just like a dinner. They'd stop by, they'd fawn over the baby, they'd drop the meal and leave, which is great. Honestly, no complaints about that. Um, And that was, you know, maybe only for the first week or so, but also it was just me and daddy, maybe. And so like, it was fine for him to be picking up food for us the second week. Sure. With my second baby, we were still living in Seattle, and my network had definitely deepened um, some of those broader supports. Like his mom's college best friend's daughter wasn't necessarily bringing dinner. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, but I actually think she maybe did. But like those relationships were <laughs> a little less present. Sure. But my network had much deepened, so. The women that were bringing me food now were not just bringing dinner. It was also bringing me breakfast for the next day. It was sitting down to fold all yeah. my laundry and asking to hear his birth story. It was bringing Owen presents from their big kids because he's a big brother now. And that's a community. Yeah. It was bringing snacks and tons of jerky and like fruit and putting it in a basket next to my bed because they're like, at some point you're going to be nursing and your two-year-old's going to be hungry and you're not going to know what to do. And you're going to throw this jerky at them from across the room. <laughs> yeah. I got you. Right. Like it was that depth of support and it oh, was yeah. a handful of people, but it was really, really significant. Um, with Noah, my third, we had moved away. And we were living in my hometown, but didn't have an active relationship with my family. Um, I could have called it in, but protecting my space energetically meant not welcoming physical support uh, in that season, at least. So that was the only postpartum where we did not have anyone bringing us anything. No one brought dinner or, or anything of the sort. So it was on dad mm-hmm. during that first, at least couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, which was intense. He also, it was like just a couple of weeks before Noah's birth that we started to discuss divorce. It was not, um, it was not a great space, right? As far as like the terms of our relationship, I think he was less, the least concerned with serving me at that season of our life than like in our entire decade plus of knowing mm-hmm. one another. Even less so than my fourth baby, because <laughs> it was like raw and tender. Um, but it still was his job as the father. Yeah, to hold you, to hold space. That that's what it means to take to be a father to love his child. Like even if he left me out of the equation, which he didn't, but even if he did, to love Noah, to love his baby, would have been to protect his mother. Mm. And if he were to fail his mother, he would be failing his baby. And he knows that. 
And we had already gone through two postpartums together. And he had seen the benefit for mother and child to be together. He knew it. He had lived it. He had supported it. So was this an active conversation that you had with him throughout throughout your motherhood journey of like, look, this is, this is what is required. Like this is what is needed from you. And, and the next question too, is how did you, how did you know that? How did you know that that is what was required that you not only needed that? Because I remember with my first, that we were literally swimming blind through the first year. We had no fucking clue what we were doing. And neither one of us, I had a younger sibling, but he was three years younger than I was. We did not, we were not raised. My husband especially was not raised around littles or pregnancy or birth or to know what that looked like. So how did you know? And then how did you help guide him? And and he been around a lot of pregnancy and birth to know that that was what a woman craved and needed and desired? He hadn't been around any. I think like his, his, this, they have a family that he was really close to in Seattle and like the nephew, you know, just the whole family, the aunts and uncles and parents and their children. He was very close with the entire family we were. And, you know, his like best friend was 25, 26 at the time, I think. And I was the first pregnant woman he had ever known. He said the last time someone was pregnant, it was my aunt having my cousin and I was two and a half or three and a half or something like he had not, no one had babies. Yeah, that's that sounds about right for my own husband. Yeah. He had no idea. Um, for me, it really was just a natural extension of trusting birth. Right? I'd look at birth and I knew about birth hormones and how they work and how they move and how there's a design to it unfolding optimally. Yeah. And how it only stops being optimal when it's externally interrupted only there's no point where birth just flies off the damn rails for no reason wait what nicole wait it doesn't do it it doesn't do it at no point does your body decide that it's going to work against you instead of for you what and so it was just a natural extension for me to look at that and be like that has to be the same case in postpartum what's my my body's my body's going to carry me through until the baby's out and then it's going to start betraying me for what for what and if you look at whether whether you take it as an evolutionary lens, we would have evolved to love it because it would make us better Absolutely. at it. Absolutely. We would evolve to love motherhood because we would be better at it if we loved it, honestly. That's species preservation alone. It is right there. So it's either that and or God gifted this to us yeah. and designed it for us to enjoy it. So no matter how you look at it, wouldn't it make sense that I like being close to my kid? Doesn't it make sense that breastfed baby poop kind of doesn't smell bad and kind of smells good, especially to the mom? So that you want to be next to the kid, even when they poop. Yeah. Their breath smells good because nature wants you close to them. Everything in life, every human on earth, everything that we have going on innately is Everyone make sure the babies live and that they live well. Well, how does that happen if mother doesn't? Everyone. And how does that happen if she doesn't want it to happen? And so, of course, it's designed that I should like it. So we prepared for postpartum. I prepared their dad for postpartum far more than I did for birth even. Where I told him, and I think it might have just been one or two conversations, honestly, but I set expectations really clearly. Like I said, my only job is baby. And I'm going to be really great at it. 
it's going to be almost effortless because everything about me is designed to do it. My only job is baby. And it's a bigger, like it's an unfamiliar task for you, but your job becomes literally everything else around me so that my job can feel good because it's supposed to. The only time my job of taking care of our newborn is going to stop feeling good is if I'm interrupted by you dropping the ball on one of those outer things that don't belong Mm, to me. So good. What that looks like is I'm not cooking. I'm not cleaning. I'll be in bed. I'll be snuggled. I'll be dirty. We'll all be smelly. We'll all be cozy. Um, People are only allowed to come over if they bring food. Yeah. And if someone reaches out to you to come over, you are responsible for communicating that. And if you don't want help in the food area, then you're allowed to say no. (laughs) Then you're on it. And like, you know, I'm not going to want, I might not want anyone for a week. I might want people right away. So just be prepared. That might be a boundary you end up having to set. We'll see how I feel. Mm. Um, And he was like, okay, that makes sense. Because he trusted me. He trusts women and mothers and births as well as I do. Um, And so, yeah, that was really pretty easy. So when it came down to it, it was... Yeah. Like natural, right? It was natural for me and natural for him in a sense too. Like he has a role postpartum built into him. He has innate drives and desires postpartum to protect and to provide and to guard over the mother baby that he's responsible for. They do. So then giving him a pathway to do that was satisfying to him, right? Like men want to be following their own innate drives too. It's not that he's going up to hunt and literally guarding outside the tent at night. So it's just providing the model for like, that's what that role looks like in the modern world. Here's your pathway to feeling satisfied and fulfilled as a father of a newborn. And, you know, setting the boundary and expectation too, which was also just really an thing of like, I don't need you to do anything for the baby. I need you to take care of me. Mm. Like, I'm going to be feeding him. I'm going to be holding him most of the time. I don't really care if I'm the one changing him most of the time because I'll be the one waking up anyway. Like we don't need, you know, whatever that looks like. And not that he didn't do anything for Owen, but I did set the expectation. Like you're not needed. Our baby doesn't need you beyond keeping mom safe. Yeah. And there'll come a day when he does, but it's, it's not when he comes out. Right. (laughs) Because look at all the animals where the dads aren't even there. Yeah. Yeah. And this primal, if dad gets shot while during pregnancy, right? If dad gets Mm -hmm. mauled by a bear, like we're okay. Not that that's not devastating and not hard, right? But. But we would survive, which is the point. Yeah. And the species would live on. Yep. And that in an evolutionary sense is, it makes sense. I love, I I just, God, I love you. And I love your perspectives on all of this um, so deeply. So within, I'm going to, again, take a a couple leaps and and correct me, help me um, guide this. For you and your perspective and, and, and even helping guide moms through a postpartum season, what are your, and again, I, I know your answer in the terms of like trusting your own body and, and following its ways, but for those that that are still navigating what that feels like and looks like, what are your hard and fast rules for the first month and then three months and six months to then the year? 
how 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 have you structured your world within the four different mm-hmm. postpartums and and grown and evolved through this? What are some of those hard fast rules that that moms could establish in themselves? You know, they're pregnant and they're looking towards their postpartum season and looking to have those conversations and here's my expectations. And, you know, that first month is very, 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 very different from the three month. And then the six month is different in the year. Mm-hmm. How, how, what would you, how would you offer guidance to those moms? I think the first, the first month really sets the foundation for all the different ways that postpartum is different than regular life. And then as you move through those further thresholds of time, as you're moving not out of postpartum, but kind of fluxing through it in a new way, you'll see those same pillars just show up in different ways in your life, right? So that first month, and always, we're focused on warmth, which is going to mean physically warm, but also energetically warm. Are you feeling nurtured? Emotionally warm. Mm -hmm. We're looking at nourishment, which is not only the food that we're eating, which can go a really long way of eating things that are soft, warm, energetically warming as far as spices and ingredients, Um, you know, soft, slow, easy to digest, made by someone who loves you as much as you possibly can, but also energetic nourishment. Are you feeling fulfilled? Are you receiving loving touch, right? So warmth, nourishment, um, a sense of comfort or slowness, That slowness really comes in as far as creating that air of spaciousness and protecting it. There is so much to metabolize during postpartum. Yeah. And it's so easy to, you know, talk about slow to digest, like slow down your digestion of life, not just with food. And so do you have enough space? Are you staying still? Are you having too many visitors? Whatever that looks like. Is there an air of slowness about you? For me, it was putting away my phone, you know, mm-hmm. like setting yeah. my phone down. I didn't want to touch it even actually. Like it just felt ugh, icky. Yeah. I make a point for myself that I don't read or listen to music for the first month because it it can just fill space that I would like to have the open space instead. Yeah. Um, not that you like can't sit down and read a book if you want sure. to, but- for me, that's a spit. That's a piece of like protecting the openness of it. It helps your connection with yourself and your baby. That spaciousness mm-hmm. helps that so much. Yeah. And we as women crave that. Actually, we don't mm-hmm. give it to ourselves very often because we feel like because we're such in a man's world. But we crave it. We crave it deeply. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, and there can be so many edges of yourself that you're unfurling postpartum. Mm-hmm. It can be uncomfortable. Are you picking up your phone to avoid how uncomfortable it feels to be still? Are you scrolling or reading to avoid the like unease and kind of like buzzing? I kind of want to crawl out of my skin feeling of having to ask for help again. Yeah. Like, is it avoidant? Is it an, is it an avoidant nervous system pattern to be filling yourself with stimulation? Mm -hmm. And I found with this fourth one, there was so much prep time within, I, let's, I, I look at the pregnancy as that prep time for that of, I did slow way down that, especially those la- that last trimester, it's meant to be uncomfortable for a reason. I feel like it's designed to bring the family into a new alignment 
and mom can't do as much as she could before, right? And the energy isn't there and the naps are are instituted in those last, you know, two or three weeks even of the body is is working overtime and you do get to call in for help or you don't and you get to suffer in some some way in that regard and and yeah, prepping for that. I love all yeah, all of those pieces. Yeah. And then knowing that all those things arrive to us through a foundation of community. And so that's a big mm. one too. Which is a painful piece in our culture at the moment. It can be. It definitely can be. I think it can be It can be softer than we often give ourselves permission to have. Ah, uh, I love that. Right? And so it's true that we don't, I don't know anyone, I've never heard of anyone that inherently and automatically had the like depth and breadth of community established prenatally that it takes to have a wholly supported postpartum, just like automatically, right? right? Where they, it was already there and they felt entitled to it and safe being like abundantly receptive Mm. to it. Yeah. But that edge of, you know, there's so much talk about like, oh, we need the village, bring back the village. What does that look like? Right. It looks like being so vulnerable, you want to (laughs) puke. Is what that looks like. Yeah. And if you want that to be the way that you mother, it needs to be the way that you postpartum. Mm. And then you got to get uncomfortable and give yourself permission to be in that space long enough that it melts. Mm. Can you hold what's hard long enough that it becomes soft? That's just the work of mothering. And it finds you in no place more than like birth and postpartum. So rich. That is so rich. So can you ask for help from people that you aren't necessarily sure are going to help you, right? This is something I think about a lot. Like, ask your neighbors. Ask your uncle. Ask your, like, if you actually want to be mothering in a world that is established different than the one that you were born into. You have to create it. And you create that through embodying it. It doesn't just happen. Yeah. And it's not because we're talking about shifting some really big energetic imprints culturally or societally, that work is not done through the masculine alone. That work is not done through force. It's not done just through choice. It's not that we're going to overhaul all the systems and whatever we are going to be blaming, these structures that are incorrect. It's done through feminine embodiment and magnetism plus action. And so what that looks like is letting yourself hold the frequency of receptivity and then taking the action to back it up. That looks like I am uncomfortable with how much I need help. And there's a piece of me. I'm sitting here in the stillness long enough to find this piece of me that resists and wants to say, I'll just do it myself and I can do it better and I can keep myself safe and I can keep myself well and I don't need anyone else. And what's underneath that is this fear or rage or grief that maybe I'm not worth someone loving me that way or that many people loving me that way or I didn't do anything to earn it all I did was have a baby and it's not their baby so why would they care and you know whatever that might be are you going to sit with that long enough until you can hold it let your take the action of reaching out for help receiving it and then don't collapse yet right? Receive, 
and let gratitude land, land, not shame, not guilt, not I received help and I feel like shit that someone helped me. I feel bad. I'll have to repay them. I bet they're judging me that I'm not doing enough, whatever that might be, right? Can you move all the way through that? And can you stay with it? Can you make sure that you don't collapse until you land with just gratitude? And it's not always going to be like that brilliant or bold or a big feeling that consumes you. It, in all likelihood, the first time or dozens of times that this is practiced, you're not arriving to that place where you're just like, oh, it's just like delicious and delightful and juicy. I'm just so grateful. I feel so safe, right? It might feel sticky. It might feel uncomfortable and it might keep feeling that way. Yeah, That's, That's nervous system reprogramming right? It's deep energy work, it's quantum work, but it's also physically reprogramming your nervous system to rewire for a state of receptivity, which is the inherent state of the feminine. Feminine, yeah. And, And it doesn't, it's usually not just given to you. Typically, you're not gonna find someone that like beats you over the head and is like, you're gonna have this beautiful experience and I'm gonna make you have it, right? You have to do it. You have to choose it. And in choosing this, we are rewiring the next generation to have that. In in mm-hmm. in carrying boys, in carrying girls, it doesn't <clears throat> matter who gender-wise our children are. It is reestablishing the feminine in our culture and the value of of receiving, the value of of this matriarch who gets to be nourished and nurtured. So in the uncomfortable work. I know for a lot of us, it is challenging to do things for ourselves. But if we know that there is a repercussion for the next generation, that they it will, might be a touch easier for them, then it gives us some, some wind under our wings a little bit to invite people into our space, invite the aunts and the sisters and the girlfriend from college and the neighbor down the road mm-hmm. to bring you warm bread and bring you a warm soup. And I love that. Mm-hmm. I, I love sinking into that nourishment of yeah. it is, it's just an edge and the edge can be softened when it's held long enough. Yeah. Slowly but surely. Yeah. And it is, it is really useful. I think this is, one of my favorite bits about postpartum, right? Why it's, you can do this work with yourself at any point in time. You're Absolutely. Like, you don't have to have a baby to enter this portal to decide that you're going to like rewire these things. But it's raw in postpartum. There is. There's an ease to doing that. Well, then it's yeah. there's some ease to doing it in postpartum because there is no bolder invitation because like you said, whether or not you feel brave enough to do this work for yourself, you'll discover that you're brave enough to do it for yeah. your baby. Yeah. And it took, it was this, I think it was probably like three, three and a half months postpartum was the first time that we took him back to my hometown to meet my extended family. And I had like held the boundary really firmly that we weren't ready to travel until then. Everyone had lots of feelings about that. That was fine. Um, But I was setting boundaries for the first time in a really big way with my family that I had never really had reason to set boundaries with before. And there was a point where I was like, Oh, shit. If he is worth setting boundaries for, I am worth setting boundaries for. And I always was. 
I could have been setting boundaries for myself this whole time. And it was this piece of shedding victimhood and claiming more responsibility over my family dynamic, even at I was 21, right? So there was a lot of my child, lots of my childhood was not my fault and not my responsibility, but this acknowledgement that like, oh, I'm a, I'm an adult. I'm in an adult relationship with my own family. Yeah. And if I wanted to look and feel differently than it did when I was a powerless child, I need to act powerfully. I'm worthy of that. He's worthy yeah. of that. There's no, there's no reality where a boundary needs to be set for Owen's safety or wellness. And I keep my mouth shut. Right. Right. Where are all the ways that I've been keeping my mouth shut and betraying my own need for safety and wellness? Mm. And it wasn't overnight. It was still years and years sure. of like practice and revisiting. And it's still work that I do all the time. Right. Yeah. But there's something really powerful about the invitation of getting to be motivated by your love for your child. And like you said, to hand that to them. Would I have still had that, that need to reclaim my right as the beloved, cherished one if I had been given that when I was a baby? Mm. Right? Yeah. If I was already familiar with what it feels like in my body, in my being, to be beloved and cherished and adored and protected to the highest degree. I would probably be doing that work for myself before I had a child. What will that be like for my children that they've had that experience and they don't necessarily have to go seeking it or get like slammed in the face by it when they're adults. And like you said, it doesn't matter son or daughter. Yeah. You know, I said that, no one has the no one has the situation where um, someone's going to surround a mother and like force her to have a good postpartum experience, except for maybe the women that marry my voice. <laughs> They're in for it in the most glorious way. They're, and they and and so that counts too. My boys have so much structure in their life yeah. for caring for mothers. I speak openly to them about it, the ways that I prioritize myself, the ways that I care for myself, the ways that I center myself, the moments where I fail myself, right? Like if I'm not meeting my own needs and then I'm overstimulated and I like snap and I yell at someone, I not only take responsibility for like, I'm sorry, I got overwhelmed and I shouted at you, but it's, you know what? I got really overwhelmed because I should have said something like 10 minutes ago. I was not feeling good at that moment. And I tried to like make myself get over it. And it actually was just too much. And I should have been kinder to myself so that I was kinder to you. Right? Like that matters. They'll grow up and they'll have an imprint of what does it look like to put myself first so that I can love other people better. And it's not that I don't ever put my kids first, right? Like I do honestly more than I don't. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) But I'm going to put myself first just enough to sustain us. That's inherent. Putting our kids first is inherent. Mm -hmm. Putting ourselves first to nourish and nurture ourselves because no one else is going to. It is no one else's responsibility. That has been a language that I've had with my daughter a lot. Mm -hmm. It's no one's responsibility to feed you. You're 11 now. It's no one's responsibility to know what's going on inside of your own body. That's your job. And I'm slow, you know, like we're handing the keys over to you. If you're a little cranky right now or, or over emotional or overstimulated, 
what is it that needed to happen an hour ago? What needs to happen right in this moment? Do you need food? Do you need to go take a shower? Do you need to go run for a minute? Do you need, what are the things that your body's asking for as well as your own soul? Your, do you need connection with me? Do you need to ground with me? Do you need a hug? What is it that, that you're needing in this moment? What did you need 30 minutes ago, an hour ago as well? And that language, I'm not modeling it. I don't feel in my own self as well as I am in just encouraging her to do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, but the, yeah, it's, it's a new generation of, of choosing themselves and knowing innately their bodies and knowing what it is that they need. And, and yeah, it, it starts with us and to have sons, to have husbands, right. That, that not only know that for themselves, but then can look at a mom, can look at their spouse someday and say, Hey, I'm seeing something going on. Would you please go take a bubble bath? Would you please go do something for yourself? Mm-hmm. I'm going to create space for you to do that and it not be begged for or manipulated for or anything like that. It's yeah. beautiful. It's absolutely yeah. beautiful. And I'd like to think that they'll be highly responsive when she asks, right? Like, yeah. I would like to think that I'm raising boys that will become men and husbands and fathers that are oriented towards their women and it's not that women are the center of the universe but we are the center of human life and like that can sound as entitled as anyone wants to twist it we are when mothers are well babies are well and so we need to have mother-centered worlds we need baby-centered worlds yeah that's the thing. We are designed to have child-centered living. You do not have that without centering mothers. Yeah. The way that I shifted for me in looking at it was looking at structure alone, looking at the male structure of their of the body, looking at the female structure of the body. And the men are external. They're designed to create the the four walls of the home. And the woman is the internal, right? Everything is internal, all the womb, everything happens inside of us. And our job is to, and I say job lightly, but our, our space is to create the four walls, warm and comforting and held. But if the structure isn't there, then we're trying to build the structure and build the home inside. And so many women are caught and well, the structure needs to be bigger, the structure needs to be adjusted or whatever. Well, if that structure, structure is protection, provision, it's all of the things that men feel. And if we can relax into the structure that the man is designed to create, and if we don't have a man that can do that, then either A, training him to be that, right, in those conversations, and or finding somebody, talking to our girls early on and training our boys to be that structure, it it relaxes and allows us to be that against center without being the center because we are we create the mm-hmm. internalsness of the home yeah yeah and this this big like societal and cultural betrayal of, of reverence for the feminine yeah. and reverence for the mother it's created generations of men that are disoriented 100% right where they don't know where to place their power of service and they also don't know how to apply it like men are hurting just as much as women they're just as confused they're just as dysregulated and disoriented and uncertain and kind of like everyone's pretty flailing right now it's this really great oh yeah 
Because there's been so many gender, there's been so many role reversals. Women are trying to be the structure and men are mm-hmm. like, I don't know how to be the internal. I don't know how to do this. And it's this, yeah, I, I feel like we're entering into a beautiful, harmonious world by the 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 mothers, the yous and I's, right, that are creating a family structure that's different than it's ever been. And there's more of us. There's more of us than I would say ever before. And that's probably a really broad statement, but yeah. in a really long time that are that are standing up for this structure and asking and demanding. I wasn't even asking. We are demanding for this yeah. to be the way that it is. And we're not settling for the way that it used to be because it's soul killing. It's body crushing. It's not sustainable. It's definitely not going to sustain our species at all. Yeah. And I think that's been really clear when you look at just the last few generations of families. And there's so many different statistics or patterns or kind of cultural movements that you could you know, start pulling into the conversation, the conversation would get so big so fast. But there's a lot of dis-ease societally. And it coincides with the fact that families kind of started to crumble. And that fathers and mothers and children all started to kind of be pulled away from their place and not, not in a restrictive or oppressive way, but as the invitation, right? As the invitation, mothers have begun to succumb to this programming that motherhood is oppressive. Fathers have succumbed to the programming that fatherhood is oppressive. That it's a burden to provide, that there's resentment for provision or protection or the burden of being a man rather than taking pride in carrying yourself in that role. And for mothers, that it's a burden to be in such service rather than taking fulfillment and pride in being so capable of serving. Yeah. And that's a really big mental shift that I think does find you postpartum, right? You're going to at some point. Right. At some point. It came for me like later than most even, I think. But at some point in your motherhood, you're going to be up at like three o'clock in the morning and you haven't slept yet. And since seven o'clock bedtime, so for like literally eight hours straight, you have been grinding to get this child to stay asleep. They have a stuffy nose, they're teething, they're puking, they're just brand new, like whatever it might be. There's going to be some point at some time in your life where you're doing this dance with the child. Now. Have you nourished yourself and established yourself and welcomed yourself to embody the archetype of matriarch? Have you become mother in such a rooted and unshakable sense that despite how hard and shitty it might feel, there's a piece of you that you can consistently connect with that is like, whoa, look at me. Look what I'm holding. Right. And if you haven't been at that place yet, and if you're a maiden and you haven't had children yet, the idea of someone telling you that, like, for eight hours straight, for nine hours straight, you are going to be cycling through nursing, padding, bouncing, swaying in the bed, out of the bed, yeah. walking, bouncing, like, you're going to, for nine hours straight in the dark by yourself, yeah. 
with the only occasional sound being your baby crying. A maiden can hear that and be like, oh, it's horrible. It's horrible. Like, I feel sick thinking about it. And more than this, there's no way I could do that. How often do we hear that? 100%. Oh, there's no way I could do that. And yet you do. And yet you do. And yet you do. Well, and you become that only after first facing those hardships and challenges. So how do you, what would be your recommendation or how did you find yourself in that embodiment of sitting there at three in the morning and at your wit's end and sobbing right Mm -hmm. along with your child because you can't take it anymore? Yeah, I think, I think you're typically designed to kind of be edged into it for the most part, for the most part. There's not really a three-day-old baby that does that, typically. Unless you're having some, like, severe ties where baby is not transferring milk and then you need additional supports and whatever else, which I've also had that experience. My second baby could not transfer milk for the first eight days and was very, very unwell. I've had that experience. (laughs) But you, I think it comes in this self-awareness, this willingness to be present with yourself in your experience so that you're integrating your experience. Okay, so break down integration. That's such a big word. Yeah, so when we have resistance to what we're in, right? The baby's crying. Maybe it's the first time your baby's cried. Maybe you're a week postpartum, it's the first time your yeah. baby actually cries for something. There's That's an edge. You're meeting a new threshold of yourself. Now, if you have any resistance in that where your body is tight and you come up against this and you're like, this is horrible. I want nothing to do with it. Right. And maybe you show up and you hold your body, but everything in your embodiment, everything in your being, your body, your nervous system wants to shut down. It rejects, it pushes back. It says no. What's happening then is for your nervous system, you come up on that edge, you get activated. We're designed to be activated by our children. Yeah. It's what makes you run through the forest to pick up the baby so a tiger doesn't eat them or whatever, right? Yeah, yeah. We're designed to be activated. When you get activated by your child, do you blame your child? Do you blame yourself for being activated? That that was an incorrect response. Do you recoil away from the experience, right? If you can hold yourself through that, if you arrive to that place and you can be like, this feels like crap. Like I'm freaked out. Even if you, even if you can just narrate your feelings while you're in them, I've done that. I've been in the middle of the night with the baby and been like, this sucks. I'm feeling like this sucks. I'm feeling frustrated. I'm feeling hungry. I'm feeling like I might die if the sound doesn't stop. Yeah. I'm feeling, even though I know it's not true, I'm feeling like it's unfair. A piece of me feels like it's unfair that I'm the one doing this and no one else can do it and no one else is here. You know what? Actually, some of that is unfair. I should be the one doing it, but I should probably have other women that are like in the house with me. Even if they're sleeping in the other room, that would feel better. And I, you know, if right. you move through that, if you allow yourself to experience the wholeness of your experience, then you don't just get broken down. You find your strength. And you rebuild yourself in that same moment. Integration is where we are available to the full spectrum of medicine of an experience. And so often, women and mothers are resisting the experience of motherhood. 
because we don't feel safe enough to be blasted open by it. It's valid that they don't feel safe enough, not resourced enough, not fed enough, not held enough, revered enough, resourced enough, not enough to be broken down and built up in safety. So we resist. But if you can fortify yourself and you fortify your life so that you arrive to those edges and those shadows and those really dark depths of postpartum and of motherhood, fully available, break me down and build me anew again and again and again and again. Day after day, moment after moment. We're being built as mothers. Yeah. Mm. And every time you do that, you become to you you know yourself as mother where the idea of being up with a baby all night i don't even bat an eye anymore not at all care. not at all that's yeah fine. that's fine i know it's fine i know it's fine because i've done it so many times and you know you're gonna survive you know that there's light at the end of the like tunnel and you know that it's okay. gonna be okay yeah i have a trust in it because i've experienced right, it right right and so if you have not built this for yourself or if maidens are listening or first time moms or even mothers that are just like, I don't feel that. And I don't know what she's talking about. There's two things you do here. One, go spend time with mothers that you do see that in. Go get models, go watch, go observe, go witness the cadence and the rhythm of a mother that has four kids. And you look at her and you're like, I mean, you see this, you'll see people make like TikToks about this, right? Of being the mom of one and watching the mom of four, like zoom by. And they're like, how are you okay? Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. One and I'm not drowning. Okay. How are you okay with five? Yeah. 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 The difference is because like you learn to swim yeah. because you're thrown into the deep end. But what if, what if instead of being thrown out, drowned by yourself and you painfully with lungs filling water filling your lungs chest burning figure out how to like flail and kick enough to keep you and your baby above water what if you've sat by the edge of the pool for 15 25 years as a maiden watching mothers swim yeah what if when you got in the pool you entered the shallow end first this is going to look like keeping your baby close following your biological design rather than like you know, in a crib, different room, monitor, back to work, humping, all of those things are disruptions, right? That's deep end versus shallow yeah. end. Following your body's biological design to shallow end. Because it's designed the same as contractions. It's designed to ease you in. It's not designed yes. to bam. No, you shouldn't, you shouldn't feel like you're like, I don't yeah. know anything about anything anymore. And then one of those mothers that you've been watching, uh, as you start easing towards, they throw you life fests yeah. and floaties. And drinks and offer to hold your hand. Because if you're in those communities with a mom, I can Mm -hmm. see myself, right? Seeing a a new mom and she wants to be around, right? Mm -hmm. By all means, here's dinner. Here's, let me hold your baby so you can go take a nap and it's, you're safe and life is okay and we'll come around. And there is, it it, then the maidens then, I say the maidens, but the, the new mothers then create the community and the village that they desire because they're choosing Mm -hmm. to be involved in community. Whereas for me and my mom, and, and maybe this is where, this is something that we as older moms that have four, that have three, that have two, that have been there, done that, is it then our, would it be then our responsibility to see other moms and say, Hey, let's, let's 
be a part of a village together. I would love to support you. I would love to, to see how, you know, just help you navigate these moments and stuff. I think 100% it is our responsibility. 100%. Because the womanhood is a continuum and motherhood is a continuum. Yeah. And we're meant to exist with one another. There's yeah. a lot of separation along the continuum of mother of womanhood, right? Yeah. Maidens are typically friends with maidens. Mothers are typically friends with mothers. Right. Elders are friends with elders. Yeah. And then with the continuum of motherhood, you have so many women that I'll hear being like, oh, I don't like being friends with first-time moms because yeah. they're so anxious or they're so whatever. Yeah. No one can see my face, but that makes me feel sick. Like, yeah. Or first-time moms are then intimidated. 100%. Right? I, I didn't feel this, but I could absolutely see if you are a first time mom and you feel like you're not doing well and you look at a mom with three kids who looks at least like she's crushing it. Yeah. Are you going to feel intimidated to let that mom see you and just how messy you're feeling? hundred percent. I can see how there's an opportunity there for that first time mom to be like, she doesn't stuff suffer like I do. She's not like, she's going to judge me. She's going to think I... Also, not only does she think that about me, I'm now thinking that about myself. I'm internalizing the belief that if I'm not thriving the way it looks like she is, I must be doing something wrong. I can't even handle one and some people have five. I had I had that exact I, thought multiple times. Mm-hmm. I'm drowning. I can't even imagine what two is going to be like. And then when I had two, I was like, God, this is a fucking breeze. Two is easier than one. I'll take two all day long because now I have playmates, right? And now my kid is not mm-hmm. needing me. Although that was my big struggle was the intensity of how much I was needed was not understood, <laughs> was not even, whew, I was such an independent person. And then three, well, we had two miscarriages in between two and three. And then the third one was like this slam again in my face of like, well, I thought two was going to be easy. So three should be a breeze in my mind. Like this will mm-hmm. be, and it wasn't. And then mm. going to other moms and being like, how did you in there? Yeah, three's hell. Like every single one, like three is so hard. Three is so whatever. So then it just reinstated that victimness of hardness. And so, yeah, it's it's fascinating. It's it's fascinating the, the culture and the creation that we've done in our society and how much we as women, if we would reach out the hand and... Baking is something that I really love. I love making bread and and being able to mm-hmm. make bread and take it to moms and take it to people that just as a lifeline, just as that little, mm-hmm. here you go. Yeah. And allowing there to be intimacy, right? Allow yourself to be witnessed in the mess. Yeah. You know, like, I remember like, Emily Bruce is a maiden in my life who I adore and every mother that I know that knows her is just obsessed with her and all the children are obsessed with her all over the country she's incredible and she was over one day she came down to visit and she was watching me as I just mother I was pregnant with Liam at the time and so I was mothering a four and a half two and a half and like not quite two-year-old or three and a half and not whatever three little boys and they were like trying to show off and trying to impress her <laughs> and we're in the backyard and there's like shit being thrown and it's like you know whatever and then it was deep time and it's a contact sport to have muffins and you know whatever it might be <laughs> yeah boys and I 
remember noticing at one point that she was just sitting back <laughs> and just like wide-eyed watching me and she was like this is amazing to watch you just like scooping up problems as you just like she was like but then so like gracefully move through your house as you just like all these things going along and you're just you're just tending to them one after the other after the other like was it a little chaotic yes was it was there like mess to be seen yes but also what a gift to not only one a current tea she played with my kids I was nourished but also she's not gonna label her life a problem when she has three kids and there's a lot going on because she has spent a lot of time with mothers yeah she knows what that looks like so when she arrives there that piece of her that is like this seems like it's too much are we failing did we miss something that piece of her is much much quieter and so that piece of her that's like so good i am capable gets to be louder yeah and it innately builds a resilience just by witnessing yeah and allowing ourselves to be witnessed heals us we as women i was having this conversation with a friend of mine earlier about how we as women crave being witnessed by other mm-hmm. women and how valuable that is it is it super is and you can't um this is something i talk- talked about in the breastfeeding conversation with my friend esme my really good friend esme in the summit and it was specific to breastfeeding but how do we as humans learn anything that is innate to our survival? Modeling. We learn to eat, walk, talk, drink, make friends, lose friends, do hard things, feel big feelings, safety. All of it is modeled. No one. More is caught than taught. Right, no one's really sitting down and like, you know, Liam says several words. He's seven months old. At no point have I sat down and been like, a mom, mom, no, everyone just calls me mama. And he's listening to them say mom hundreds of times a day. And he's figured out who I am. <laughs> and he's practiced how to say it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Modeling. Why mothering? Mothering well. Mothering sustainably. Mothering from a place of resource and nourishment is inherently necessary to human survival it's a skill set why would it not be something we learn through modeling it's supposed to be we're supposed to be little girls not tucked away in schools but at home with our mama and all our aunties and all their friends and hordes of children where we're naturally stepping in at age seven to where we we try to be the one to soothe the baby when it starts to fuss and the mama comes up and helps to spread a baby like we're playing with it we're exploring it we've been watching it these are modeled skills we're being modeled how to hold a baby how to soothe the baby how to feed a baby how to hold a baby to sleep how to emotionally regulate but also then and this is the piece that most women I would say almost no one has ever actually been exposed to how to nourish yourself as a mother. Yeah. Do we know not just the rhythm of baby care, but mother care? Do we know mother care? Did you watch women as a child nurse their babies, feed them and rock them to sleep and find space to eat and drink and move and get sunlight and have friendships? 
No. Did you only see babies cared for? Yes. Were babies kept alive, but were mothers kept alive? Was anyone invited to thrive? Yeah. Those are the models that we have to reclaim. And in every bit that you do that for yourself and allow it to be seen. Yeah. By your children and by women. Yeah. That's how we actually rewire this massive cultural shift that's really on the horizon and is is really, really exciting. Mothers will be well. Yes. Families will be well. And I'm so excited to be a part of that. Like one tiny piece of that, of movement going that direction. I wanted to circle back. We have just a couple more minutes. Um, I wanted to circle back around to, uh, you were talking about the structure, the pillars of postpartum Mm -hmm. and warmth, uh, nourishment, Mm -hmm. space were were three that you've touched on. Was there more before we end this? I wanted to just really ensure that those were, because those do, I can see those being replicated throughout each iteration of motherhood in teenage years, in marriage, in being that mother-in-law, mm-hmm. in being the, the mother of your grown children. Uh, all of those still very mm-hmm. much apply. Yeah. I think the, that piece of it needing to be through community and needing to be witnessed that's really that last piece of that. And us building that for ourselves. Yeah. Because no one's going to do it for you. The same as no one's going to mm-hmm. shove food down your throat. It's your job to create that for yourself mm-hmm. and create and establish those boundaries yeah. within that community even so that you feel safe. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, you talk about the masculine structure that really holds that feminine softness or slowness or spaciousness. Yeah. Postpartum is not the time to be... You can't build the structure and live in it at the same time. It's damn challenging. Right? Yeah. Not really. Yeah. Not to the depth that is required 100%. to fully appreciate the structure and containment. Yeah. So that's where postpartum preparation really comes into play. Yeah. You are creating the masculine structure, prenatally creating the masculine structure that will hold your feminine soft postpartum. You don't need someone else to do it. That looks like asking for help, yeah. making food, setting boundaries, creating all whatever that is. Your postpartum prep, that's the structure that's going to hold you. You build it firmly enough that when you get there, you're held by you it. You are held by it. And that innately, what we see in our culture is nesting. It's that mm-hmm. that's permissible currently in our culture. And so that Mm -hmm. nesting feeling of like, I need to get my ducks in a row. I know this last postpartum, I freaking labeled. (laughs) I went through and labeled everything in my house because I'm like, I'm going to sit here in my bed for the next month minimum. And whoever walks in my house, they will know where the baking soda is versus the gravy. And it's all going to be there. And I labeled my five stars for the first time when I was, when I was pregnant with my firstborn. Yeah. My husband had been asking me and I was like, you don't even cook anyway. Like, I don't like how it looks. Leave me alone. <laughs> but I was like, yes, I can. I can. I know the difference between baking soda and baking powder right. just with my eyes in the unlabeled jar. Yeah, yeah I'm good. And then I was like, wait, <laughs> hold on. How can I support <laughs> the structure to come in and serve me? And that, me. yeah, that is just. Absolutely. And it's, you know, it's too- we get told yeah. that it's kind of nonsensical, right? Nesting gets kind right. of laughed at here or there. It's designed. But it's all preparation. And it's so, yeah. it's so intuitive. It's so, there's so much wisdom in it in setting yourself up and really knowing yeah. which ways that looks like. 
this last postpartum, it looked like, you know, like it looks like also doing, you know, the deep clean, right? And, and it's not how many stories it's this like old wives tale like oh you want to have a baby clean your floors on hands and knees yeah. one that's really good for your body and that it, that is like a great alignment task and whatever else but also how much is it that that communicates safety to the woman's body of like we can let go now right. we don't have to be holding anything else we can be held now yeah and you asked about that you know the three and the six and the nine months postpartum and kind of moving out of it the space that i'm in right now at this like six seven month mark is it's I call it like back end nesting right where it's really not until this like six month mark that I start to really sink into the structure of my like new life Mm. right this whole time has been playing with it surviving being flexible being surrendered like the days are being kind of tossed together however they're shaking out and sweet love I'm attuning to my baby and my children and we're figuring it out. Right. And it's really only once I get to this like six month range that we're largely have figured it out. Where now yeah. the like the next part, the next part of my life begins now. The rhythm is there. So I'm in this season of back end nesting yeah. where I'm like, okay, no one has cleaned the baseboards in six months. And no one has like reordered the linen closet is so not looking like a linen closet anymore. It's so my house distraught in disarray. Right, right. And it's been fine. I've been so comfortable with that up until this point. But now it's just like, okay, I feel myself coming up on this threshold Absolutely. of like, now we are family of five, mother of four. What do I need to kind of clear away what yeah. we've been in and to fortify myself going forward? it looks like a reset. It looks like I'm going to get my house back in order and I'm moving furniture and rearranging rooms as a reflection of our family constellation as it has become. There's that really large period of becoming. It's a solid six months of becoming. Six to nine months, that exogestation is really potent where I would not, you know, for nine months, I wouldn't imagine being away from my baby at any point. Sure, Um, sure. And so, and about that time, the baby is mobile. The baby mm-hmm. is crawling and the everywhere. baby is doing all kinds of things that their development is in that place. And so for me, the language was I'm finally coming up for air. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what it feels like to some extent, mm-hmm. because now instead of my eyes being so down, 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 mm-hmm. focus, focus, focused on this life, I can now like raise my head up and see around me and see the dust. Mm-hmm. I, I wasn't yeah. even, I didn't even see didn't even anything until that. Yeah. And then there's a hormonal shift that happens again at that six, seven months that's that's interesting because the the needs of the baby's m- milk is different yeah. than it was those first six months. And um, the nourishment is then different because for the mother mm-hmm. because of what her body needs. And it is so intuitive if we are quiet, if we have the space mm-hmm. to hear and listen. Yeah. Yeah. And you need a certain degree of flexibility up until then. To have known. Yeah. It's not that boom, six months postpartum, you're like aware exactly. to online. And now right. all of a sudden you have these new thoughts and ideas and the <laughs> energy level and the freedom of your arms and limbs to now do them. You've been you've been gathering these little clues yeah. and trails of information the whole time as you uncover your child and uncover your new self. 
and uncover your big kids, right? All three of your big kids are different people than they were before we received that baby. And they're coming out of their own cocoon. Mm -hmm. There's a new, like there, yeah, the cocoon is so different. I saw that so intensely this last time with my olders and taking pictures. And, you know, I took the pictures with all four of them together at the, the one month. And then again, at like the six, seven month. And I was just like, you people are not even the same people and they're not, but like their faces are more developed. And oh, it's just, yeah. Oh, life is so new and different and it's beautiful. Ah, I would not trade this experience for anything else for any other experience the highs the lows the depths the pain the turmoil the struggle the the intensity of love and joy and pleasure that comes with all of it I just mm-hmm. it's the richest experience of life to be a mother I you'd made the statement at one time and I think it was in the nourish postpartum like I hope that I never like I only ever want to come back as a mother yeah. there is never a life that I dream of wanting to experience that is not a mother yeah. and I resonated be a mother in every life I do I resonated I resonated with that instantly and it's funny because I was talking with a friend of mine this morning and I was like you know when I was a kid I I've probably been a man in all of the little lives that yeah. we've been through because I remember distinctly as a child I want to know what it feels like to carry a child I want to know what it feels like to be pregnant. I want to know the feeling of birth. I want to know the intensity in my body, what that feels like. And the curiosity in that as a child, I was so wildly fascinated by it all. And I now, and I'm like, oh, there's no other experience to have. (laughs) There's none. Yeah, it really is just like it's, I always say motherhood is life distilled. It is. It it is. is. Life distilled down. It is potent potent can you go have a human life without children where you experience depth and loss of course of course yeah but will it be as bright and as fiery and as emboldening i i don't think that you can and that doesn't mean that other human experiences aren't as valid for those souls incarnating in that path but there is no experience like being a mother and there isn't yeah and it is just such such work to give yourself a template of safety and to reestablish a sense of I am safe to experience all of it and I trust my experiences I trust God I trust the universe I trust life to be working for me because that's when you're able you're available to access the highs with the lows the lows will find you those are easier to stumble across those those are the things that can just get thrust upon you it's easy to go yeah. those places. It's a little bit harder to let yourself have bliss and euphoria. And I don't really know why, yeah. but it is without yeah. the program template of safety. And so that's that's the biggest thing for mothers postpartum and beyond is can you nourish yourself? Can you get to a place where you just feel really safe, where you feel rooted? Because then it's going to be really effortless for all of that joy and gratitude to just be really apparent in tandem with the heart, right? Where I feel my most grateful when I am my most battered at times, right? I have no problem holding those in equal measure of being like, this is the hardest fucking thing I've ever done. (laughs) Look at this beautiful child. Look how I'm being like, you know, I was talking to another woman a couple weeks ago, I said, you know, I've had the experience of like a child screaming in my face. And yet in that moment, I'm like, yes, 
<laughs> I'm not going to tell you because it will piss you off. But oh, like I'm not even listening to you anymore. I'm mesmerized by you. I'm captivated. I'm enamored you. with your strength. Like, you and were threatening. Structure. You were threatening my death, <laughs> and I am still just like ah. I could eat you up. I love you so. You know, like oh. it's no longer hardness. No longer becomes a threat yeah. to your joy. Challenge no longer becomes a threat to joy. And that's a really incredible place to be in your life where your joy does not disappear when challenge finds you, where your gratitude does not waver in the face of hardship. Nicole, I love you so much. (laughs) Thank you for this conversation. Thank you for your presence, for your wisdom. Thank you for gracing us with, gracing me right now, but gracing this audience with motherhood with this sovereignty of motherhood and hope truly this ability to see that yeah it's just okay it's all great it's It's all great even the really hard things are all great so you have a couple of offerings right Mm -hmm. um i would love for you just briefly my battery is running out on my computer so i would love for you to briefly share um a couple of your offerings and then where people can find you yeah so people can find me on Instagram at the seed of joy. And I have, yeah, I have the nourished postpartum summit and a course that runs along with it for women that are about to have babies, either their first or their ninth, and are really, really ready to dive into some of those deeper nuanced levels of crafting postpartum wellness. They're reclaiming that foundational imprint. They are such rich conversations. I have enjoyed every single ounce of it. They're really good. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. I had the most fun making it. It was it was so nourishing for me to be nine months pregnant. I can imagine. And making it. It was so good. Um, and then I, you know, host workshops every once in a while on, on raising sons and rejecting martyrdom and all those things that kind of piece together to this nourished motherhood. I saw how you stumbled. And, um, and then I'll be opening again my group mentorship rooted which is where we really, really dive into that work um, in tandem together of reestablishing that foundational blueprint of safety and nourishment in motherhood so that whether your postpartum set that tone or your childhood set that tone or your marriage sets that tone, you discover the ways to set it for yourself. And it's it's really, really life-changing. Oh, I'm excited for that. Thank you. Thank you. I love you. We will talk to you soon. I love you. Have a beautiful day. Enjoy your babies. Thanks. You too. Thank you so much for joining us on this awe-inspiring exploration of motherhood. Once again, mom began as a spark of an idea to find a way that would hold a mama through those transformative experiences of her life, pregnancy, birth, and postpartum with a focus on the postpartum season. From that spark ignited a flicker of a flame and turned into a light illuminating the path before us. A magazine would be the hand that held mamas through her journey. As the postpartum guide lay within reach on her nightstand, its pages whispered remembrances of resilience, self-discovery, and the ancient power of embracing the transformative season of motherhood. The flicker of the flame within each article danced gracefully, illuminating the path with insights on caring for not only her baby, but her own body, navigating the intricacies of breastfeeding and bottle feeding, and embracing the beauty of self-care practices as a newly postpartum mama. 
In those in-between moments, whether it was a quiet cup of tea before dawn or stolen minutes of solitude during nap time, Mom has found solace in the pages of Once Again Mom. The magazine became a haven, a safe space, where she could explore the art of setting boundaries, learn about nutritional wisdom, and discover the nurturing embrace of chiropractic care for both her and her little ones. The journey of Once Again Mom wasn't just about surviving the postpartum season, it was about thriving in it. Each turn of the page was a step forward, a reminder that the flame of ancient wisdom burned brightly within every mama, and she too had access to it if only she trusted it. So as the modern postpartum guide graced the homes of countless mothers, it became a symbol, a symbol of resilience, of celebrating the unique journey of becoming a mother once again. In the soft glow of the bedside lamp or the warm embrace of sunlight streaming through the window, mamas found strength inspiration, and a community within the pages. Once again, mom had evolved from a spark to a flicker, and now it stood as a radiant blazing torch, guiding mothers through the sacred and transformative journey of postpartum bliss. It wasn't just a magazine, it was a legacy, a testament to the power of community, trusting one's own inner ancient maternal voice, and the unwavering flame that illuminated the path for generations of mothers to come. To receive your own magazine and join the Radiant community, head over to onceagainmom.com. Let the flicker within you transform into a blazing flame of ancient wisdom. Your journey through pregnancy, birth, and postpartum is about to be illuminated most beautifully. We'll see you in the pages of Once Again Mom.